have you open in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Matthew chapter 21. And we're, gonna, we're doing a little bit of a, of a detour this morning. We've been in Matthew chapter 12, and the, the next passage is kind of heavy, so I thought I'd save it for when the kids um, weren't with us. But we're, we jumped to Matthew 21, because as I was reading through Matthew this week, just it stuck out to me as far as the kids coming and praising Jesus. But I do have a few quick announcements before we start. First of all, I want to say Happy Reformation Sunday. You know, and like, what? what is that? If you don't know what it is, Google it. You'll be all right. Um, it's also Mark Gaddy's birthday tomorrow. So there's that. The second thing is uh, I wanted to just pass along greetings from our team that's in Romania on the ground. And they've been there for about a week and a half, four of them, Larry and Judy Nelson, Kathy Noer, and Linda Biederman. And Larry texted me on Friday just to give me an update, and so I'm going to just share that text with you so you kind of have an idea of what's going on. Here's what he said. Good morning to you. Good evening to us. We're here at the camp. They're outside of Bucharest, engaged in a totally different mission than we'd planned for. Camp has around 70 refugees, mostly single moms with children. Most have been here several weeks and have settled into work and support groups that literally run the camp from cooking to cleaning to supporting one another to scheduling classes to evening Bible studies. So if you don't know, this team had gone over thinking that those are the kind of things they would do is cooking and cleaning and laundry and service kind of stuff. But the refugees who are there don't just want a free ride. They want to serve and be part and they're creating community there. So Larry goes on to say, So our role has changed to building relationships, listening to their tragic stories, hugs, and tears. Pastor Ben has been great. He's taken us on a road trip to the mountains and will give us a tour of Bucharest next week. Continue to pray for us and for all here who have lost everything and are struggling to start over. So I give that to you and encourage you to continue praying for them. And isn't that like God for us to go on a mission, him him to say, no, this is actually what I want you to do, and for it to be all about relationships. So continue to pray for them. We look forward to hearing about how that has gone when they return. Um, Two other kind of points of business. First of all, last week we put Steve Markell's name forward as a deacon candidate. So I encourage you in the next week or so to get to know Steve or ask him any questions you might have, or come talk to a deacon and elder, and we'll be taking a vote of affirmation on that next week. And then also, you probably know that Charlie Hubanks had a procedure this week on his heart, and he is doing really, really well. Um, So we praise God for that. It was a valve replacement, and he was awake for the whole thing, which he was telling, I was was like, that seems odd. (laughs) He said, yeah, I felt the whole thing, didn't hurt, but... Anyway, so he made it through, and yesterday just felt like he's gotten a new lease on life. So we're praising God for, for that and hoping to see Charlie here back with us next week and for another 80 or so years. It would be great. Whoops, trying to find the right slide here. Sorry. As usual, technical difficulties. There we go. Okay. All right, Matthew chapter 21. Now we're starting. So we look at this passage today, and Bo read it for us. And this is the story that comes right on the heels of Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem right on the last week, the front end of the last week of his life. We traditionally call it Palm Sunday. 
And he comes into town, comes into Jerusalem to the acclaim of the crowds. Everybody is rejoicing. They've, they've spread out coats on the, on the ground and palm branches on the road before him. And he's riding into town on a donkey and he's surrounded. The text actually says he's surrounded in front and behind by the crowds who are joyfully shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. And that that Hebrew word, Hosanna, literally means, save us, Lord, save us. So they're saying, save us to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And the scene is really one of energy and joy. So it's, it's like there's a party that makes its way into Jerusalem with all this hubbub. But they don't stop at the gate and and finish the parade. The parade actually goes all the way up into Jerusalem to the temple, to the temple mount, and into the temple. And this is where Jesus gets to work. And it says, Jesus went into the temple and cast out all the sellers and buyers who had set up shop in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of the dove sellers. And he said to them, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a hideout of robbers. And God has really given his people the gift of the temple. That's what the temple is. So just a little bit of cultural context here. is that God has given his temple to the nation of Israel as a gift, a place for him to dwell with them. God wants to be with his people in relationship. It was to be a place where they could come and offer, yes, sacrifices to God, but where they could offer prayer and worship and praise as well. And ultimately, as we'll see in just a moment, it was to be a place where the whole world could come to meet with the God of Israel. So so God wants us to come to him. And not only does he want us to come to him, but he actually provides a place for his people to come to him. And in one sense, the, the temple was to be, if you will, the closest place in a fallen world to the Garden of Eden. It was to be the place where heaven and earth met, a, a place of peace and wholeness, where, where God would be with his children in a, in a loving relationship, where, where guilt, and, guilt and shame would be done away with, and God would bless his people 24-7. Now that sounds pretty good, right? It sounds pretty good to walk with God, to not have guilt or shame or any of those sins over, hanging over your head, to be blessed and have God's face shine on you all the time. And that's exactly how the Old Testament saw this place as well. Isaiah describes the temple as a place not just for Israel, but for people from all nations. And it says, These I will bring to my holy mountain, Isaiah 56, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Here he's talking about the temple. I'm talking about bringing all nations to the temple. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples or for all nations. So God provides a place to come and meet with him. And it's, it's no longer, now it's no longer the temple. There is no more temple anymore. And the Jewish, or, or excuse me, the New Testament teaches us that Jesus himself now fulfills that role of being the place where we meet with God. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But in this context, that's what the temple is, a place for people to come, invited by God to meet with them. And he invites us to meet with him even 
if we can't get there. Even if, we're, even if there are things in our way of, of getting to God, and there are plenty of things that keep us from God. I mean, just think of the things that keep you from praying consistently. Think of all the things that keep you from reading your Bible every day. Think of the things that keep you from coming to church and fellowshipping with God's people. There are plenty of things that keep us from God. And some of those things that keep us from God are, are outside of us. They're not our fault. Like, and that's what's going on in the temple. When Jesus showed up, what was happening in the temple was that people had turned the temple into a noisy marketplace full of animals and haggling and buying and selling and commerce and consumerism. And it was full of it. Thousands of people in the temple, in the, in the courtyard of the Gentiles, in the temple, haggling and making noise like a marketplace. Could you imagine going there and trying to pray? I mean, maybe the closest equivalent, I've been watching the World Series, is you know, going into a, a stadium full of, of rabid fans. It could be football, baseball, or whatever, and then just trying to quietly pray. Probably not the right place, right? There's so much distraction. There's so much going on. And not only that, but in this temple where they're buying and selling, there was manipulation and deceit taking place because they were selling sacrificial animals to people and they were basically setting the prices, gouging people as they controlled the merchandise, taking advantage of people who were simply coming to worship who simply wanted to come and meet with God and offer their sacrifice and praise and prayer. It's kind of like, if you've ever been to Disneyland, you're not supposed to bring any outside food or beverage in, right? Kind of like the movie theater. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yes. You guys sneak, you guys sneak food in though, right? Is that how you do Everybody's like, yeah, <laughs> sneak food in. That's one option. The other option is to pay $12 for a bottle of water. Right? It's kind of that same thing. You get to the temple where you gotta use this kind of currency and you gotta use these kind of animals for sacrifice and there's a price gouging going on. So there's deceit and manipulation and market control. So not only is it noise, but it's, it's manipulation and it's oppression. But the temple wasn't supposed to be a place where God's favors could be bought and sold at a profit. And for the, for the prophet to be pocketed by those who were in power. It was supposed to be a place where the leaders actually were there to help people get close to God rather than creating more distance from God. It wasn't to be a place where the, where the message being broadcast was God is happy with the highest bidder. Or the only way to get to God is to jump through a million hoops and over a million hurdles so that you can earn his favor. And it will probably... T- won't do you, won't do a bad thing if you also pay a little bit extra. So there's distraction, noise, money, profit, earning your way to God. These are all things that come from outside of us and keep us from God. But sometimes what keeps us from God is actually what's going on inside of us, isn't it? We see this when the blind and the lame and the crippled come to Jesus. In Matthew 21, 14, the blind, the crippled came to him in the temple and he healed them. The blind and the lame, the crippled, they came to him in the temple and he healed them. And they came with physical issues, whether it was blindness or disabilities. Now, for most of us, those aren't things that hold us back from God. However, we certainly might be spiritually blind. 
or spiritually crippled or spiritually unable. We may be just dealing with sin. Or we may have an addiction in our life that is holding us back from God. We may be overcome with our own selfishness or our own greed or our own angry spirits. We might be bound in shackles of guilt or shame or emotional or relational brokenness. And a lot of that is our own fault. We, we take these things onto us and we serve them as we would serve idols. And some of that comes into our lives also at the hands of others. And so often what's inside of us makes us blind and unable to find Jesus. Some of us, because of all those things going on, don't feel even worthy to come to Jesus. And so we hold ourselves at arm's length. So many things keep us from God. So often it's ourselves. But the, the, first, time, the first thing we have to recognize is that we can't get to Him on our own. We can't get to Jesus on our own. We can't get to God on our own. We desperately need His help. And until we understand that, until we understand that we can only get to God with Jesus' help, until that sinks in for you, then you can't, that you can't work your way into God's graces, then you will never come. Unless you know that you can't come, you will never come. That's an irony. Because the proud will never come. It's only the humble who will come to Jesus, who can come to Jesus. Let's go ahead and just turn the screens off. Only the humble will come. Notice, notice the story, right? Who comes to Jesus? Who comes to Jesus? Those who come to Jesus are the blind and the crippled and the children, right? Those who shouldn't be able to come. Those who, who, who the disciples even want to keep away from Jesus. It's people who are broken and dependent, who are regularly treated as if they are less than everyone else, seen and not heard, right? But in the scriptures, in the New Testament, the stories of Jesus, the people we see coming to Jesus all the time are the humble people, the people that they know that they don't have it figured out. Now, it's true that in this story, the leaders come to Jesus too, don't they? But they come in anger. They come in indignation. These are the opposite of humble. These are the proud people. And proud people don't come to Jesus because proud people don't need Jesus. We've got it figured out. People who rely on their own strength can always, this is what we tell ourselves when we're proud, we can always just do it on our own. And the sad thing, though, is, is that the proud, like these leaders, they, they not only don't come to Jesus, but they regularly and deliberately block the way for other people who are trying to come to Jesus. But I love this story because it shows us that Jesus is in the business of gathering people who've been scattered from God by life or by others or by whatever, gathering people together who've been scattering and scattering those who are keeping others from gathering and coming to Jesus. And that's what's taking place when Jesus comes in the temple and starts tossing tables and throwing people out. What's happening is that he's scattering the proud and he's gathering the humble. You see, when, when Jesus does that, when he tosses tables, when he kicks out the, the money makers and the marketers, Jesus is doing, if you will, he's doing the dirty work of advocating for all of us. 
by confronting the things that keep us from coming to Him. He's doing the the heavy lifting for us. Remember, we can't come to God on our own. We need Jesus to bring us. And He's going ahead and He's clearing the way. And that's what He's doing in the temple. He's making a way for us to come to God. Kids, you ever have a moment, you kids in the, in the room, maybe parents too or adults, you ever have had a moment when you want to ask your mom and dad for something, but you're nervous that they're going to say no? Has that ever happened? Okay. Somebody in here has got the parents that always say yes, and that's good too. Maybe you want to go, I don't know, you want to go to a friend's for a weekend, or you want to go to a, to a party or a dance or something, or maybe you just want to go down to Dairy Queen and get some ice cream. Or get a new trampoline or something. In my house, um, sometimes it'll there, there's different tactics, right? There's the mommy-daddy tactic. So you go to mommy, she says no. And then you go to daddy and ask the very same question. And, oh, daddy will say yes. Or, or vice versa, whatever it is. There's mommy-daddy. There's the emotional manipulation. Can any of you kids get yourselves to cry on, on command? Do the, like, puppy dog pouty eyes, right? There's that. That can be happening. But the, the, the best one in my house is when the older kids send the youngest kids to make the ask. Anybody else have that in their house? Okay, use the baby, right? That's the, that's the one here. Now, it's a bit underhanded. My kids will admit or should admit that. But it's actually, I mean, it's actually a pretty good approach. Here's the logic to it, right? She's so cute. In our house, it's Daisy, right? She's so cute and she's sweet. How could mom and dad possibly say no to that? And if they do say no, then they're, they're going to treat her a lot, more, a lot nicer than they'll treat me, right? A lot more nicely. And the punishment's going to be less severe. The consequences will be less severe. So, so in other words, what, what my kids, they've admitted this to me before. You guys have done this before, haven't you? Okay, Hallie's done it. Maybe not Emma. The, uh, the move here is get the baby to do the dirty work, right? Get the, kid, get, the, get the little one, the weakest one, to do the dirty work. Now, of course, there are other times when you can't rely on cuteness and charm to get the work done, to get the job done. Like, you need strength sometimes. You're faced with a bully. You're faced with someone who physically intimidates you or wants to hurt you or take your lunch money, whatever. You're faced with a bully. Your baby sister is probably not going to help. You need a big brother. You need a big brother who you can appeal to, who can advocate to you. You need a strong advocate who will stand up for you when you're not strong enough to fend for yourself. And Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is our big brother. Jesus takes care of the bullies for us and clears the way so that we can get to God. And as an advocate, Jesus does the work of cleaning out or clearing out what he calls a den of robbers. He goes into the temple and throws them all out. And it's an act of advocacy and protection on the part of these people. Jesus standing up and going to bat for us when we can't do anything for ourselves. Jesus quotes the prophet Jeremiah from Jeremiah 7 when he compares these people in the temple, these merchants and the leaders, he compares them to to thieves and robbers. Basically say, you've made the temple into a hideout or a cave or a den 
where where bandits hang out. Like think about the old west, right? You've got bandits who, you know, maybe they rob a train and they take all the all the money that they steal and they go to their cave, their hideout, and they count their money, they count what they took, and then they also plan for their next robbery. And he's saying that's what you are doing with God's temple. You've made it a, a hangout to plan your next robbery. You've made it a hangout to count your uh, count your profits. Jesus accuses them of being thieves and vandals, even being murderers who are plotting to steal and kill and destroy. They're pictured here as agents of darkness doing the works of the devil in the house of God. They're bullies. But Jesus is our big brother. If you've ever seen the the movie Saving Private Ryan, it opens with a a pretty classic, pretty brutal scene of the the beach landings at Normandy Normandy on um, D-Day in 1944. And these are the American troops, the Allied troops land at the beaches on Normandy and come, come onto the beach. They are just decimated by... German machine gun fire from concrete bunkers that are set up above the beach. And as the, as the scene rolls on, eventually one company of soldiers is able to make their way up to the bunker and take out the bunker. And making a way by doing that, taking out the bunker, eliminating this machine gun fire, they're able to make a way, a pathway for other soldiers not only to advance up the beach, but simply to survive. And when I think of Jesus cleansing the temple, this is a scene that that comes to mind for me, because when Jesus enters the temple and starts tossing tables, starts kicking people out, he's removing obstacles. He's removing that machine gun fire that's coming at, at us, removes that and makes a way for us to advance into God's presence. I love the word here for, for throw out. When Jesus throws out the, the money changers and the, and the marketers, it's, it's the same word that is used when Jesus casts out a demon from someone. When he throws out demons or exercises demons, he's casting out those in God's house who would prey on others so that we can come and pray to the Father. He's casting out the things that vandalize and desecrate the true intentions of the temple. And for many of us, this may simply be the lies that we believe about God. Maybe maybe God has come into our lives and cast out those lies that God is maybe just a grumpy old man who sits up in heaven waiting for his chance to strike us down as soon as we do something wrong. Maybe you believe that lie and Jesus is trying to exercise that from you. Maybe it's a lie about yourself, that God couldn't possibly love you after all that you've done wrong. That you're just not worthy of forgiveness. Jesus does the work of clearing the way so that we have no more excuses for not coming to him. But even beyond this, Jesus doesn't just exercise all this stuff out of the temple. He welcomes in those who are coming to him. He heals the blind and the the crippled. He takes on the things outside of us, but also the things on the inside of us that keep us from him. He has taken on our sin, our guilt, our shame. As he was put on the cross and raised from the dead, he took our sins upon us and has offered a way 
for us to be forgiven of our sins, for our guilt to be cleansed, for our shame to be erased, and for us to be made whole. You have no excuses, brothers and sisters. Come to Jesus because he has made a way. So in our weakness, Jesus makes a way for us to come to him, for us to come to God. When we couldn't fend for ourselves, Jesus does the heavy lifting and he makes a way. And and so after he empties the temple out of these robbers, Jesus fills up the temple with things that are appropriate to the temple, namely people who are going to pray and praise him. So in verse 15, it says, The chief priests and the scribes, having seen the amazing things he was doing and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. So they said to him, Do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read that out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, I have perfected praise? So so Jesus gets rid of all the noise in the marketplace of the temple, and he replaces it with a different noise. But the noise is noise of prayer and noise of praise. It's children's voices crying out and praising him as the Messiah. It's the prayers of the blind and the crippled coming to Jesus and asking humbly for his help to make them whole. Jesus has made the temple, at least for a moment here, Jesus has made the temple what it was originally supposed to be, a place to come and meet God, a place full of prayer and praise. But those who oppose him, of course, want him to shut the children up. But unbeknownst to them, Jesus has actually armed these children with their greatest weapon. Do you know what the greatest weapon of of faith is? Praise. The greatest weapon you and I have in the battle of faith is praise. Jesus quotes Psalm 8 here. Psalm 8 is a beautiful hymn. Jonas read it earlier this morning. A beautiful hymn about how God uses the weak and the humble and the helpless and the oppressed to do great things, to win battles over enemies. It's a hymn about God humbling the exalted and exalting the humble. And Jesus quotes from the Greek version of this psalm, and he says in verse 16, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you, God, have prepared praise. If you go back in your Bible to Psalm 8, it'll say something different. So don't freak out about that. It's okay. In in Psalm 8, verse 2, it says, Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So we take those two... Um, we take those two interpretations of Psalm 8, or those two translations of Psalm 8, that, that God has prepared praise out of the mouth of babies and children, and he has established strength out of the mouths of babies and children. We see here that, that one thing Jesus is saying is that prayer is our, or praise is our greatest strength. Our measure of praise is our measure of strength. Our strength is in our praise. In the praises of the weak, that is of children, God establishes victorious strength that triumphs in battle against his enemies. So it's kind of like my my kids sending their baby sister to do the hard ask. 
She's got more strength in that moment than a 20-year-old boy because she's cuter, right? In the same way God is saying here, these children, these humble, these ones who know that they can't come into God's presence out of their own strength or on their own, come, and all that they do is praise. All their their mouths do is speak praise to God. And God establishes that as strength and overcomes their foes. So you want to win a battle against the evil one? Then worship. Do you want spiritual strength? Then be a person who praises. You want victory in your life? Then exalt the name of Jesus. We can brag about a lot of things. We can, we can puff ourselves up. We can call ourselves strong. We can live arrogantly and shake our fist at God in, in frustration or in anger or in independence. But ultimate strength, according to Jesus, ultimate strength comes in humility and takes up a weapon that looks weak, but actually packs the greatest punch in the universe. Praise. God provides in this story the place and the way. It's no longer a a physical temple. The physical temple is gone. He offers us a way to himself, and it's through his son Jesus. And Jesus has taken away every obstacle, whether it's outside yourself or inside yourself, to come to him. And so if you've never come to Jesus, if you've never put your faith in him, if you've never trusted him for forgiveness and, and a relationship with God, then now is the day. Today's the day of salvation. Come to him. You have no excuses. And as these young people continue to lead us in praise this morning, as the children come and put strength in our mouths through praise, Let's take this as an opportunity, as as Jesus' people, as Jesus' humble people. Let's take this as an opportunity to come to God and wield the greatest weapon in our arsenal. Let's praise Jesus together. Would you pray with me? Father, as we continue praising Jesus, lifting up his name, we, uh, we simply ask that you would be exalted, Jesus, that you would be seen more like what you truly are than all of the lies that the world and the devil and even our own flesh want to tell us. God, that you are greater than our thoughts, you are greater than our strength, you are greater than our enemies, you are greater than our brokenness, you are greater than our wounds, you are greater than our pain, you are greater than our shame, you are greater than our guilt, you are greater than our sin. You're greater than all these things, Jesus. And we look at you to make a way so that we can come to the Father, not only to get newness of life and to be made whole again, to get forgiveness and salvation, but also to get the greatest weapon we have, and that's praise. So, Jesus, would you be enthroned on our praises this morning? And would we be strengthened as we praise you together as God's people? pray this in your name. Amen.